Greetings, everyone. We had 200 in uh, Fresno last week, and we will wait and see after today whether Mr. Phillips was back down there or perhaps one of the other ministers. They're going to begin sharing the responsibilities, and we're going to have a brand new church where we didn't have one until just last week. So we were quite pleased to have 135 brand new people we had never seen before uh, come to the one-day personal appearance campaign in Fresno and to have a brand new church start as a result of that television station we've been on over there now for about six months or so. And everyone was very, very happy to see that size of a crowd come out. I was joking with uh, one of our members here about visiting you today, so I'm one of the visitors. I've been gone most of the time. We were in where? Cincinnati and then Little Rock or the other way around and then Fresno, now here and next week, God willing, down in Jamaica. Uh, Bronson James and I are going to go down and conduct Sabbath services in the Tampa St. Pete Church on the Sabbath and then go on down to Jamaica. The Ministerial Council has approved the long overdue ordination of Mr. Ian Boyne, and we feel it's probably a year, year and a half overdue. So we're going to go down there and ordain him as a minister in the church, and hopefully we can talk him into coming up here to the United States sometime, but I'm not sure how we're going to do it. And uh, no doubt what happened the other day to those poor people in Dallas aboard the 727, the Delta airliner, and the tragedy that occurred there in spite of the very good news that many of them did survive. There were still about 11 or 12 who died. Mr. Boyne is one of those people who will not fly. He just does not want to trust his life on an airplane, and here he is all the way down to Jamaica. And I think maybe we're going to have to somehow talk him into getting aboard a ship and bringing him up to New Orleans or somewhere in Florida and putting him on a train and getting him over to one of our feast sites and letting the rest of you hear this man. And I think that he's one of the most exciting and electrifying and very warm, personable people that I've ever met, and I certainly did enjoy hearing him speak that one time we were down there. And then shortly after that, we're off, I think, for the Feast of uh, Atonement, the non-Feast of Atonement, the non-Feast of Atonement, the Fast of Atonement, and uh, my wife and I are going down a little ahead of time as usual because, of course, once the Feast of Tabernacles begins, then I really have to go to work. And I can't believe the Feast of Tabernacles is upon us already. It just seems like it was only yesterday, and here we are with another year behind us. I slipped in and uh, borrowed something from Mr. Ronald Dart's office. I want to show to you, and I hope that the camera can zoom in on this and get it very clearly, and then I'm going to ask you to pass it around, and you can all enjoy a good long look at it. This is his daily inspiration. This is a picture, which I'm sure you'll be able to see. I'll point it over here a little bit and around. And that shows 42 men sitting in an enclosure in what appears to be a lecture or a workroom in a kind of a series of raised tiers or balconies. There is a man down below here whom you can see is busily bent over either a drawing board or perhaps he is producing a work of art. There's a waste can absolutely filled with paper. There's paper on the floor. His head is bent over. He is very industriously creating something. Now, these men are all sitting here, and most of them have got their faces all contorted like that. They're going like this, get out of here. Some of them are going, oh, that stinks. They got their fingers on their nose. They're looking at one another. They're looking bored. They're saying, what a dolt, what an idiot, what a dunderhead. And every one of them is criticizing 
what this man is doing. Now, there's, not a, there's no word there to tell you what you're supposed to get out of all of that, but I think it's quite obvious what you're supposed to get out of that. I want to read you a few things that I've compiled over a period of time having to do with criticism. Criticism is something you can always avoid if you say nothing, if you do nothing, and if you are nothing. Now that is a very true statement. I want to show you this picture again, and we're going to think of a few analogies. Up here is the Congress, and down below is Ollie North. How's that fit? There's one. Now there's another I think of. Up here is the media, and down here is Dan Quayle. How does that one fit? Or I can think of another one up here is all of the Democratic Party, and down here is George Bush. Or you can turn it around, the Republicans, and of course Michael Dukakis. Or you could say these are the Pharisees, and that is Jesus Christ. And that would apply too, equally as well. If you would turn to the eighth chapter of the book of John, you will see how Jesus had his critics. They were continually criticizing him because they said he could not be the Son of God. They got into it really over the capture of a woman who was taken in the very act of adultery, and this was the ultimate opportunity, they thought, to trap Jesus Christ. So you begin in chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, he'd gotten there very early in the temple, sat down, began to teach the people, and the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman taken in adultery and set her right there in the midst, dragged the poor woman in, obviously weeping, embarrassed, and shamed, and said, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what do you say about it? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. And Jesus stooped down with his finger, wrote on the ground as though he hadn't heard a word they had said. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. Notice, he rose up and said, He that is without sin among you, immediately after he wrote something on the dust of the highly polished marble floor. I, through extrapolation, decided to include in the book the real Jesus, as well as in Peter's story, that I think he was linking a series of names. I think he was writing Judah, or whatever their names might have been, and Gloria, or Henrietta, or Barbara. I think that he was kind of linking some people together here, and the Jews, the Pharisees, stood up and wondered what in the world he was doing. And then again, right after saying that, he that is without sin among you, he stooped again and wrote some more on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one after the other, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. They always had their pecking order. And so, of course, the younger let the older one up to look over the shoulders of this huddled group and Jesus who was kneeling there and the disciples who were about. And the oldest one looked and with a gasp of absolute shock and indignation grabbed his cloak and hurled it over his shoulder and stalked out with a look of utter contempt on his face. 
And then the next one had his chance. And he looked, and he was shocked, and he did the road business, and he stalked out. And one after another, until the very youngest one had an opportunity to see what Jesus was writing on the floor of the temple, they stalked out. And they didn't have another word to say to him. So when Jesus lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said, Woman, where are those your accusers? Has no man condemned you? And she said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. He didn't say go and sin again or go and live in sin, but he said go and sin no more. Then Jesus began to speak and said, I am the light of the world. He that follows me will not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And the Pharisees said, You bear record of yourself. You're giving yourself credentials. You're telling us that you are somebody. Your record is not true. Jesus answered and said unto them, Though I bear record of myself, yet my record is true, for I know where I came from. I remind you of Mr. Dart's sermon of some weeks ago in response to the motion picture which claims that Jesus was a harried, frustrated, demented young man who had no concept of who and what he was, and who was wrestling with the idea that he might have some divine calling or some divine origins, and never really resolved it even to the point of death on the, on the cross, which they have, it should be a stake, but on the cross when he was fantasizing about committing adultery with uh, Mary Magdalene. And of course, Mr. Dart's sermon was, did he know who he was? And he went through many proofs that Jesus had to know, that his mother Mary had to teach him from the time he was a young babe, that he had to know at age 12 when he answered the doctors of the law in the temple, that he had to know throughout his entire life. And here again we find him saying he knew exactly where he came from, where he was going to go. But you cannot tell where I came from and whether I go. You judge after the flesh. I judge no man. Now we all are very aware of the calling of David. We're aware of 1 Samuel 16 and verse 7, where it says, After one, after another of the very, very stalwart, proud, handsome young sons of Jesse were brought in to look at the prophet and to stand before him to be examined as to whether they were the one whom God was to anoint as a king. And finally, the least one of all, the youngest, perhaps the least attractive of all of those sons, was brought in from the sheepfold, and his name was David. And they said, Surely this cannot be the one. And Samuel was told by God that it was the one because God does not look on the outward appearance, but on the heart. Now, David was a man who was capable of having a broken-hearted repentance. He was led to write the 51st Psalm, which after the affair with Bathsheba and then putting to death by moving him up into the fore in the battle, Uriah the Hittite, her husband, so that he could have the woman and try to cover the sin, David prayed a prayer of repentance after the death of that child that was born, and he said, A broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And he said, Search me and try me and see if there be any unclean thing in me. And he asked that his heart be cleansed, and continually David prayed that kind of a prayer. He was a person who was able to repent from the heart, from very deep within. Jesus said, You judge after the flesh. I do not judge any man. Yet, and if I were to judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I and my Father who sent me. I won't go on in that portion right there, although all the way through the eighth chapter and on into the ninth chapter, one of the most astounding examples of all of criticism of these Jews who were looking outwardly 
and, of course, who had prejudices and bias long before the act or whatever it was that Jesus did, whether it was the healing of someone in the temple or whether it was telling this woman that she was to go and not to sin anymore and not accuse her or take her out to be stoned to death. But what I'm leading up to is simply the false standards of righteousness of many churches of this world, the false standards of righteousness of the parent organization, the Worldwide Church of God, and the false standards of righteousness many of you attempt to impose on yourselves. I want to specifically point out the practice of many churches, including the Worldwide Church of God, the Seventh-day Adventists, the Baptists, and many others who have criteria which must be met before you can become a member of the church. It may involve study. Some of them have a six months waiting period, an arbitrary waiting period, almost like a betrothal during the days of Mary and Joseph, when even though they were married, six months had to transpire before they were literally bound as a husband and wife and could consummate the marriage. Why they simply pick an arbitrary period of time, like six months' trial, before you can actually be received into fellowship of the church, I don't know. Oftentimes I find that when people visit prospective members for the worldwide church, they ask, have you studied up to lesson so-and-so of the correspondence course? Some people have not, haven't even heard of it. Have you read Herbert W. Armstrong's autobiography? Some people have not. Many have. And there are many other books that portray a very rather difficult and intricate, and I think time-consuming, series of requirements before you can become a member of the church. I've run across this feeling in the minds of many people over my 33 and more years in the ministry of those who impose self-criticism and who have listened to some of these churches and some of the critics and believe they will never be good enough for the fellowship of God's church. I talked to a gentleman just this morning who was so distraught that he was in tears. He was thinking of suicide, and he felt so bad. He was filled with self-revulsion. He hated himself because he'd slipped up on tithing and some other things. Of course, the real problem was a little different than that. It was the fact that he was a Vietnam veteran, that he'd been subjected to an awful lot of things that no man should have to go through, and that the VA hospital had been dispensing Valium, and he was on a lot of things like Valium, and when I began to question him to find out whether drugs might be at the root of his obvious total emotional uncontrol, sobbing and unable to express himself to me on the telephone, I said, you call that VA hospital, tell them down there what these things are doing to you, tell them about your emotional upset, get back and talk to a medical doctor about it, I'm not qualified to tell you that, explain these symptoms and find out whether or not that Valium is not causing what you're going through. The spiritual part I have no problem with, but the drugs, the medical part, I'm not qualified to analyze to help this gentleman. But he was filled with revulsion. He felt personal condemnation. He felt guilt. I would remind you of the book that I wrote a long time ago, Getting Rid or How to Get Rid of Guilt, because many of us simply do not know how. Right on through life. I've had to put up with a great deal of criticism. I've had to be a Revulsion. He felt personal condemnation. He felt guilt. I would remind you of the book that I wrote a long time ago, 
getting rid or how to get rid of guilt, because many of us simply do not know how, and we carry a great deal of guilt right on through life. I've had to put up with a great deal of criticism. I've had to be aware that from time to time when I go out on one of these personal appearance speaking tours, people may stand up in the audience and challenge me. I've had people say things right in the middle of a dramatic pause with 5,000 people in a darkened auditorium that are absolutely scatological. I've had people say horrifying things, interrupting my sermons. So over the years I have found that there are examples, not only the example of David and Ahithophel, the example of a man who thought, well, if he is cursing me, maybe God feels that I need to be cursed. But I have compiled a series of things which have always stood me in good stead that I'm going to pass on to you that have to do with criticism, whether it's institutional or whether it's personal. Let me just give you a few of them. Criticism, I said at the beginning, is something you can always avoid if you say nothing, if you do nothing, and if you are nothing. But if you say something, if you do something, if you are somebody, you will be criticized. So what? Criticism can be constructive if it comes from constructive men. It can be accepted as a lesson in grace if it is meant to be cruel, and in turn becomes the poisoned edge of a two-edged sword cutting the very person who wields it cruelly. Remember the proverb, a soft answer turns away wrath. Another one, agree with your adversary quickly while you're in the way with him, even if he is wrong, because it leaves him nothing else to say. If your agreement means you are lying and twisting the truth, then do not agree, but instead do as Jesus did and say absolutely nothing, because it only adds fuel to the fire. Answer not again to false charges, the ones who delight those who make the charge, it is not they who are being charged, and in this they are always very happy. The media with their microphones and cameras are very delighted, very happy. It is comfortable to be on the other side of the camera. Their lives are not being investigated. Whether they are, as they say in the vernacular, ACDC is not questioned. Whether they tripped on marijuana when they were in high school is not under debate. Whether they got a D in political science is not under question. They're on the other side of the camera and the microphone, and in that they're always happy. You ever experience that when you were a child in school, when the teacher is taking out after little Johnny or whoever it is, you're so happy that you're the one who was over in the other corner of the room and it was not under the gun. You're not the person defending yourself. Instead, someone else's problems are being exposed. There's always the possibility that if a man criticizes you, maybe God wants you criticized, and maybe you deserve it. I wrote, a heckler is a furious buffoon. Why treat him as if he were intelligent? A heckler is filled with ego and vanity, or he wouldn't believe his own ideas took precedence over the entirety of the rest of the audience. A heckler is a rabble-rouser. That means he thinks the rest of the crowd are rabble, and is therefore insulting the crowd more than the one whom he heckles. The Bible says, answer not a fool according to his folly or you descend to the level of fools, and you call his foolishness wisdom, and he then thinks that he is wise. If your critic is saying the truth, agree with him. What more can he say? It's the end of the story the minute that happens. Here's one I really like. Gossip is nothing but criticism motivated by jealousy or insecurity. 
That's all gossip really is. Constant critics are warped and unhappy people. The problem is they have nothing but inadequacy and failing, and they're continually pointing the finger in order to cover up their own problems. People, I remember this one from the book Mr. Dart read and then told us about the games people play. This comes right out of one chapter, lets you and him fight. People like the excitement of a feud. They will say, come on, put up a fight, especially if they're not involved and only excited bystanders. And they will urge a fight every time. And then stand by, bemused to watch, not especially interested in the final outcome. Something to think about. This one I want to conclude with that I think is very profound. Abraham Lincoln wrote this before he ran for president, when he was still working in a business. If I were to try to read, much less answer, all the attacks made on me, this shop might as well be closed for any other business. I do the very best I know how, the very best I can. If the end brings me out all right, what is said against me won't amount to anything. If the end brings me out wrong, ten angels swearing I was right wouldn't make any difference. And finally, to wrap it all up, it is much easier to be critical than to be correct. Let's turn to the 23rd chapter of the book of Matthew. This is, of course, the famous one where Jesus Christ really nailed the Pharisees and told us exactly what they are. He spoke to the multitudes and his disciples, verse 1, saying, The scribes, who were they? They were the newspaper reporters. The scribes were the media of the day. They were bilingual and trilingual. They were skilled and educated in letters. They were the public accountants and the CPAs and the attorneys, in a sense, although lawyers were a distinctly different class. But largely, 90-some percent of the population during Jesus' day was illiterate. And so the scribes were people who were lettered and intelligent. The scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do, so long as it, of course, measured up to the laws of Moses. But do not after their works, for they say and do not. They bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their little fingers. A few weeks ago, a lady came up, and I believe it was my wife, she told this story to, or one of the other ladies there, and I heard it immediately after one of our personal appearance campaigns. She was trying to become a member of the parent organization. She'd been listening to the television and getting my father's literature and all the correspondence course lessons, so she tried to attend. But the poor dear lady had suffered a terrible bout of polio when she was a young girl, and it had deformed one leg or maybe both. And so she requested of this pastor, could I please come to church wearing slacks? And the answer was, absolutely not. You must come wearing a dress. Well, she just couldn't stand it because she was so embarrassed over the emaciated and distorted look of her legs. She merely wanted to cover them, to hide them, so as not to be an offense to someone else, not to stand out in a crowd. She wanted to wear slacks, merely so that she didn't have to go in a gown that dragged on the floor and everybody would think she was off a rocker if you go in like that. But the minister was adamant. He had his rules, he had his orders from headquarters, and there was no way. So she is now attending with the Church of God International and is quite welcome to wear her slacks, if she so desires. All their works they do for to be seen of men. They decorate their flactories. They make them broad. They enlarge the borders of their garments 
which God said they were not to do. And love the uppermost rooms at feasts and the chief seats in the synagogues. In other words, fame and recognition and deference. Special treatment. And greetings in the markets. And to be called of men, teacher, teacher, or rabbi, rabbi. But be you not called rabbi. I've often wondered about the practice of many of our educational institutions where they have these various degrees. Now, a degree is basically temperature, but in this case it's supposed to be a degree of intelligence, a degree of erudition, a degree of accomplishment, of having studied a certain amount of information and having some professor tell you that you are now at a level above the other people. And there is the bachelor's degree, and that came from the time way back in ancient England when the unmarried bachelors were studying and they began to get through school and prior to marriage and taking up business as an accountant or whatever. It was a bachelor's degree. And then came the master's degree, where you master the subject, and you are a teacher. It's really a teacher's degree, and the same word is identical in the Hebrew language, master, teacher, meaning the same thing. The master's degree, doctorate, that is the absolute epitome. I remember men who have had other people do research for them, write books for them, plumb all kinds of information, put together a computerized study of the analysis of how ambassador students did after graduation and then have it run through a board that says we're going to give him a doctor's degree. And from that time on, everybody says doctor. So they go through the rest of their lives known as doc this and that and doctor this and that and, and so on. I also remember a rather unfortunate joke that one of our number who was a doctor, in this case a medical doctor, came out to Ambassador College, took the podium one day, and told us what a BS was. And I won't go into that, but you can understand that the initials uh, conjured up certain scatological references from the past. He then said that an MS was merely more of the same and a PhD was piled higher and deeper, and everybody got a big kick out of that, the entire student body and the faculty. And this man was putting down his own degree. And I thought, well, I'll tell you, that's the way I feel about mine, because I fought so hard to get Ambassador College accredited, and it was accreditable. It was far more accreditable than many other smaller colleges and universities, in my opinion. The self-help study was about two inches thick. We'd had many in-depth visits by the Western associations of schools and colleges, many of whom were Mormons. My father was under the idea, I don't know who got it into his head, it was a false idea, and I told him so time and again, that the Western uh, accrediting society would come in and dictate to us how we should preach or teach doctrine, that somehow we would not be God's college, we would not be free to believe in and to preach and teach the doctrines that we believed at that time. And I said, Dad, the Mormon church has the weirdest science fiction far-out doctrines of any church I've ever heard. They're one of the worst universities in the United States at that time. They still had not come to the idea of even allowing some of the blacks on their campus, which Ambassador College wrestled with for years, and originally, and here's one of our examples, would not allow blacks until they were married because people, and I won't name them, began to realize that, you know, we'll have all kinds of miseducation here, and the blacks will be chasing after the white women, and everybody was all paranoid about what would, would happen. We'd just have a melting pot of the races here. This is going to get out of hand, you know, sound like a bunch of Congregationalists in 16. 37. But I told my dad, the head of the Mormon church just tells anybody, including the Supreme Court of the state of Utah, he hasn't had a vision from the Lord. And that's the end of the story. 
The only way they're going to change their doctrine is if the head of the Mormon church has had a vision from the Lord as to whether or not blacks ought to enter the priesthood. And he hadn't had a vision. What can they say to that? He hasn't had a vision. Oh, I see. So, you know, it's just like trying to have somebody go sue Oral Roberts for claiming that God talked to him the other day. We know God didn't talk to him. Oral knows God didn't talk to him. Everybody knows God didn't talk to him, except a few people who still want to believe in Oral listen to him on television. The media knows God didn't talk to him. The Congress knows God didn't talk to him. But nobody can sue him because nobody can prove it one way or the other. Nobody's had a, tele, you know, a, a tape recorder available when, when allegedly God does this talking to these people. So there's no way to prove it one way or the other. Well, I told my father that the Mormon churches have schools and colleges, and they are accredited. That's the Seventh-day Adventists who have weird doctrines, and Mrs. E.G. White, and the belief they're going to heaven for a thousand years, have schools, hospitals, and colleges, and they are accredited. But all of these other churches have their doctrines, including the Catholics, with their Knights of Columbus and their orders of nuns and so on, and they are accredited. But my father was just not able to deal with that, to get into his mind that somehow some foreign power was going to come in here and get inside Ambassador College and pollute the entire environment. So we were never accredited. And that's why I have never referred to myself as doctor. I have the degree, but to me it's just a Ph.D., if you get my meaning. So I'm just plain old Ted Armstrong. And I don't have to have the greetings in the marketplaces. And when people say, what should I call you? And I have this happen to me probably once a week. When I travel about, people come up and meet me for the first time. So sometimes I will meet a couple, three hundred people in a month that I've never shaken hands with before. Do you mind if I call you Ted? Some of them will say, do you mind if I call you Mr. Armstrong? That's fine. Anything you want to call me. I've been called all kinds of things. And uh, you'd be amazed some of the things I've been called, as a matter of fact. <laughs> But I dealt with this in the parent church, and I've seen it shape up and, and form as a kind of a, a cancer of a class society and of a distinction that puts the ministry up on a pedestal and results in a very great evil in the church, a very great evil. They love the uppermost rooms at feasts, and I won't belabor all that I labored to overcome and did not succeed in doing in the parent organization, but have succeeded in doing in the Church of God International. We don't have special areas for the ministry to sit at the Festival of Tabernacles. And she seats in the synagogues, and greetings in the markets to be called of men, Rabbi, Rabbi, but be not called Rabbi or Teacher, for one is your Master, even Christ, and you are all equals. That's what brethren means. You're all equals. You're all brothers and sisters, and brothers and sisters are equals in a family. And call no man your father upon the earth, obviously not talking of your paternal father who gave you your life, because there are many examples in the Bible of a son calling his father, father. So he's talking as a spiritual office at this point. For one is your father which is in heaven, neither be you called masters. So someone who earns a master's degree should not go around saying, I am master so-and-so. For one is your master, even Christ, but he that is greatest among you shall be your servant, and whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. I won't read all of these criticisms, very accurate ones, of the Pharisees, because he really labeled them for exactly what they were, but we'll skip along and look at a few of them. He said in verse 15, and this is one that really hits home to me in my past experience, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you compass sea and land to make one proselyte. 
You move heaven and earth. You will go over the airways, television, a literature program, correspondence course. You will have this insistent voice out there year after year after year. And finally, when you get this person, what do you do? You bring him inside a cult. And you corrupt this person. And this person becomes capable of hatred toward beloved members of their own family. This person becomes capable of cutting off without ever speaking again their own parent. This person becomes capable of hauteur, unparalleled, unprecedented, becomes capable of vanity, of exclusivism. When he is a proselyte, you then make him twofold more the child of Gehenna than yourselves. Woe to you, you blind guides, which, says, which say, Whosoever shall swear by the temple, it is nothing. And whosoever shall swear by the gold of the temple, he is a debtor. You fools and blind, why did they make that distinction? For whether is greater the gold or the temple, it makes the gold sanctified or holy once it is inside the, the, the temple. And whosoever shall swear by the altar, it is nothing. But whosoever swears by the gift that is upon it, he is guilty. You fools and blind, whether is greater the gift or the altar that makes the gift holy, that sanctifies it, makes it important in God's sight. Whoso therefore shall swear by the altar swears by it and by everything on it, and whoever swears by the temple swears by it and everything that is in it. And he that shall swear by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him that sits thereon. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you pay tithe very carefully on every last little thing, all the way down to spices and herbs and money, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law. And what are they? Judgment. And that means discretion. It means fairness. It means objectivity. It does not mean harsh criticism. It does not mean subjective or emotional criticism. It means fairness. Judgment. Mercy. That's when the person has done wrong. That's when the person is weak. That's when the person needs help. You dispense mercy and faith. Now, where do we have room for those in God's church? Do we have judgment without mercy? Do we have judgment without faith? In my experience, there have been many people who have stayed away from God's church. I've met many of them for years and years and years. I met one old gentleman. I was discussing this very principle within a few weeks ago at one of the personal appearance campaigns because he had been a smoker all of his life, and he had this terrible habit. Let me tell you about smoking for a minute. I was talking to a gentleman this morning who was so distraught, he was almost unintelligible. I could hardly understand a word he was saying because he was crying so hard. He was about 36 years of age, bawling like a baby, could not talk, because he was filled with self-revulsion and didn't really realize that Valium was actually short-circuiting his emotions in his mind and that he wasn't really functioning normally or he probably wouldn't have been that emotionally upset and distraught. But when you get on something like that, it is no longer a matter of a daily conscious choice which involves a deliberate sin, and many people think it is. You see, when I smoked, I smoked for many, many years, and I was pack and a half, two packs a day, man, and I smoked from morning till I went to bed at night in the Navy and so on, and I've come to understand since that time, after I look back and realize what an agonizing time I had trying to quit and going back to it, and trying to quit, and going back to it, and slipping up, and then running out into a weed-choked lot, and I've told that many times I won't go through it again, but to find the pack I'd thrown away in disgust when I said yes to the girl at the checkout stand, give me one more pack. I came to understand it was not my mind 
my conscious choice or my conscience that was telling me, Ted, have another cigarette. It was my fingertips. It was my capillaries. It was my flesh. It was my heart. It was my entire bloodstream. It was my system. I was addicted to a drug, and that drug is called nicotine. And it sets up a powerful tingling sensation throughout your body, which communicates through the nervous system to the mind, and the mind is powerless oftentimes because by this time the mind is subject to the nervous system. And the body cries out. Now, how do you rationalize cannibalism among prisoners of war during World War II in Japanese prison camps? But it took place. It took place in Germany. It took place on rafts and boats in the sea. It has taken place in other areas where people have been. I remember one sensational case where an airliner went down high in the Andes Mountain between Chile and Argentina, south of Aconcagua, where the mountain peaks are up to 22,000 feet. Most of those people survived, and yet one by one the weak were eaten. There were cases in the Arctic where people have actually come back and been driven insane because later on they had to confess that they had actually eaten their partner after he died. Now, how can a human mind descend to the level of an animal, and worse, to get into such a thing? But it, it, it proves my point that that is the most extreme proof I could offer you for the fact that the human brain, the human mind, the human conscience can be completely subdued and over body. You are a human physical collection of appetites. You've got a desire. Your most immediate appetite right now is air. Cut it off and you're going to struggle like mad. I don't even want my mind. I have to blot out of my mind those poor people in that airliner. I have to blot out of my mind the way they died and how they suffered. And you know, I haven't done it successfully, have I? Because I'm thinking about it. And I think of that young, good-looking family my wife told me about, a lovely young woman, a lovely, good-looking young man, beautiful young daughter, and they're found by that after door, huddled over, the father over the baby, the mother over both of them, burnt to a crisp. And they're down there trying to protect that child, and she's trying to protect both of them. And they take their last breaths of chemical-laden, hideous smoke with the heat beating on their bodies, and eventually the flames consume them partially, and they're dead. What was their most desperate need? If someone would come along right now and put their hand over your nose and your mouth, you would start struggling and fighting, and in a minute and a half, if he held it there, you would be dead. Lynn Torrance used to just absolutely move the student body to tears and shock when he would describe his capture by the Japanese on the island of Mindanao, how he was put in the hold of a ship which was on its way to Japan how people were packed in so tightly they couldn't even fall to the deck when they died, how when they would take the hatch cover off and let in a little bit of sweet air, that first of all they said they had to have food, and then he said then they had to have water, and how they gave them rotten uh, sweet potatoes, and what that caused, diarrhea among them all, and the, the intolerable, absolute unbelievable conditions that they underwent, and how they would then throw the bodies overboard of the men who had died the night before. And how finally, it wasn't only water, but just air would be the most precious thing that they could have, just air. I'm only trying to illustrate something so you'll begin to make it a little bit easier on yourself and begin to take some of your burden and put it on broader shoulders than yours that many people simply neglect. 
because there are churches out here, including the Worldwide Church and including the Baptist Church and the Seventh-day Adventist Church and a lot of other churches who preach to people that you've got to get good enough to come in here and fellowship with us. You've got to measure up. You've got to overcome. You know, I've given the analogy of what you would think if you walk into the emergency room of a hospital with a compound fracture of your arm and the doctor says, you idiot, you're making a mess here, you're bleeding all over the place, go home, dress the wound, set the bone, stitch it up, and come back and I'll look at it. And I've merely drawn that analogy to say that when we are spiritually wounded and hurt and overcome by habits that we can't control, it is no reason for us to continually scurry around the fringes and to keep God out of our lives and to keep Jesus Christ from working inside of our lives the way he ought to be. Because we are listening to the voice of some of these churches who are the Pharisees, the modern Pharisees today, who have the same double standards, who are nothing but a lot of professional critics who criticize and who judge according to human standards and not according to the standard of God. I'm here to tell you that a human appetite is more powerful than a human mind, that your belly can rule your brain, that your fingertips, your appetites, your desire for fulfillment physically can absolutely make you a quavering slave where you are utterly out of control. You have no, no possession of your own faculties. You are not the person at this point making the decision. A metabolic process is making the decision for you. Your brain is subject to some other passion, some other appetite. Therefore, you've got to have help. And that help has to be outside of yourself. It has to be bigger than yourself. Some people check into a hospital when they cannot overcome alcohol. It's a good idea. They acknowledge, I can't do it on my own, but they can help me. They can put me in there, and they can isolate me, and I can't get at it. That's all there is to it. They stick me in, in a ward and lock the door at night. There's no alcohol on that floor. I can't get there. And that way they can overcome it. Sometimes they go back to it, and sometimes the cure is not permanent. But at least they're acknowledging, I've got the problem. I know how to go get it solved. But even that, alcoholism, is no excuse to tell Jesus Christ you're not ready for him yet, to tell God you're not ready for his church, you're not ready for baptism, because you're listening to the voice of some of these other churches, you're listening to the voice of the Pharisees, you're listening to the voice of the critics, you're not listening to Jesus Christ who said, Come unto me, ye that are heavy laden, burdened down with a lot of problems, with a lot of habits, a lot of appetites, a lot of things that make you feel guilty, make you feel like you're not good enough and you can't measure up. And he said, I will give you rest, because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Well, sure it is, because he's already overcome. So his shoulders are broad, and his yoke is easy, and his burden is light. And wouldn't it be wonderful to just take it and lift it off of your shoulders and place it on his, and let him carry that burden for you? I know that people who need to be in God's church are staying away for all sorts of reasons. I think one of the most common reasons of all is familiarity contempt. That's the old adage that we've heard all of our lives, familiarity breeds contempt. I used that excuse all my young life, all through my years in the Navy. And until I was struggling with the idea of the possibility of baptism myself, I was still using that excuse, bringing my mother to tears. 
There were some hard-bitten, self-righteous old biddies in that church at that day that were so obviously Pharisees in female dress that I could spot them quicker than anybody else. And I was right, and they were wrong. And I was wrong because I was right, because I was judging wrong, and because I was using them as an excuse so that I said, I'm not accountable. I can go out here and run around, and I can hell around, I can drink booze and smoke cigarettes and do everything I want to, as long as old Mrs. Hill is criticizing all these other people. As long as there's a gossip in the church, that can't be God's church. Those people are gossiping about one another. There's an old woman in there that's so critical, and the more they criticize me, the more I was determined to prove to them, you're right. I'm just a rotten preacher's kid, and I'm going to be just as bad as you're telling everybody I am. Sure enough, I was. That was my excuse. But I didn't know that I was offering an excuse. I thought that was the greatest logic. I thought that was absolutely rational. I thought I had the most beautiful example there to tell my dad, my mother, why there was no reason I was having anything to do with that dumb church, because everybody was a hypocrite. The people were sinners. They fell short of my exacting requirements with my nicotine-stained fingers and a pack of cigarettes in my pocket. They fell short of my requirements. So I was comfortable with all of those excuses. In Hebrews, the first chapter and the second chapter, we read about the priesthood of Jesus Christ. There's a very important scripture that I want to mention in passing. Talking about the great calling of Jesus Christ and of the permanence of God's kingdom and of heaven, and even the impermanence of the earth, thou, Lord, in the beginning, verse 10 of chapter 1, have laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They shall perish, but you remain. They shall wax old as does a garment. And as a vesture will you fold them up, and they shall be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not fail, will never end. He will live for all eternity. But to which of the angels did he ever say, Sit on my right hand until I make your enemies thy footstool? Are not they all ministering spirits, that is, the angels, sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? We are unaware of the existence of angels. We're unaware of the help they provide. We don't see them. We don't acknowledge their presence. We're unaware of them. And yet eventually when God opens our eyes, and it says in 1 John the third chapter, we shall see him as he is, our eyes will also be unveiled to behold the entirety of a spiritual dimension in which there are perhaps billions of angels, maybe more angels than human beings, who knows. And maybe finally we will come to understand the truth of the battles that have taken place for our minds. I will never forget, and it stands my hair on end to recount it, and I'll try to say it briefly because it scared me to death. A woman that we suspected might have been demon-possessed was brought by a couple of other ministers to my office when I was but twenty-six or seven in Ambassador College. The minute she walked into my office, I'm sitting behind my desk. She said, I see a demon and an angel over your head. Scared me out of my wits. And I wasn't about to say something cryptic like, who's winning? You know. But I just commanded the demon to be cast out of her, and hopefully it was. And I don't know the final outcome later on, but at least she was subdued at that time. But I have always carried that in the back of my mind, and I wondered if a demon, not a human being, was doing that talking. And if the demonic eyes, not the human eyes, beheld a third dimension, and that in actual fact there was a battle going on over my head. Now, I believe I know who won, 
and who continues to win in most all of those battles. But I can't say that they always do, and neither can any of the rest of us. But I think you're unaware that you have a partner in crime. You have a partner in sin. And these churches that become so self-righteous do not point that out to you. I've already mentioned appetite, and I've mentioned criticism, and I've mentioned these churches with their false standards of man's righteousness. And when they criticize you even for things like hair or sideburns or modes of dress or certain particular physical habits and keep you away from fellowship because of feeling of guilt or feeling of inferiority or feeling of not measuring up. But let's also mention that there is a very real Satan the devil who has billions of evil cohorts, or hundreds of millions certainly, and that he is a partner to your sin. The Day of Atonement will certainly point that out. And that in order to counterwork or to thwart or to annul the effects of demonic influence, which is everywhere rife and rampant in this society, it is in the entertainment media, it's in books and literature, it's in motion pictures, it guides and controls the minds of the people who write a lot of acid rock music, the people who write all kinds of literature or music which even glorifies every kind of licentiousness all the way down to murder or suicide. Only a demonic mind could either contrive the production of a film in which in a grand finale a human being is actually murdered, the so-called blue films that are circulated around the underground, even here in the state of Texas, and a movie I think was made down in Houston, or understand a mind who would actually go to a motion picture where violent, dominant sex and so on is the theme and where the individual being so used and abused is actually stabbed to death in the final scene, and you get to enjoy watching a human die. I cannot understand that apart from the fact there is a devil and there are demons, and you need God's help and his angels to protect you from them because you're not strong. You're not as strong as a demon. All of you in this room together aren't as strong as one demon. There was a man in whom there were seven demons, and these people... Uh, the uh, sons of Siva, was it seven sons of Siva, I believe, and just perhaps one demon is the way it was. Yeah, there was one demon in one man, and this famous Jew's name was Siva, we know nothing else about him, began to try to adjure them by Jesus whom Paul preaches, and they didn't know what they were doing. They were pompous, and they were just trying to take the office of the ministry to themselves. And this one man, because of the demonic influence, was so powerful, he beat them blue. I mean, he beat them half to death. He beat seven men, and every one of them had their clothing ripped completely off of them by the time it was all over, and fled out of there naked. I remember a time my father described when a man who was demon-possessed came to the meeting in London, and he had never heard a human voice that powerful before in his entire life. It just about shook the building. They wouldn't let the man in, and he was outside on that door, and he said it just about rocked the room. They were terrified. He was praying and commanding the demon to depart, and he finally did. But I've heard of some things like that that are very, very frightening. I want you to realize, whoever you are, along the tape program, people in the years to come who will hear this and perhaps are hiding behind the concept they can't measure up, they're not good enough, they're going to be criticized because they don't have the right standards, they have these habits, they got these problems, so therefore they can't have fellowship, they can't be baptized, they can't become a member of God's church, they cannot overcome because they're not good enough, they've got to be good enough, they've got to tackle this problem and solve this problem, get rid of this problem first, then they can be good enough. 
And then they can come into fellowship. No, the way you get into fellowship is to realize you're bad enough to need it. That you can't fight a demon by yourself. You can't whip up on them with your bare hands. You can't put a demon out of your life or from away around your head or out of your home who is actually helping, aiding, and abetting and trying to get you to be encouraged in all of these physical things that are dragging you down without the help of a powerful angel there to get rid of the demon. And it's a fact. It says, are they not ministering spirits? Christ is the high priest, yes, but he has help and he has ministering spirits. Now, you're not aware of when they help you. I was not aware of what battle was going on over my head, but she made me aware it did. And I've come to believe it in all those years, to think that probably was happening. Are they not ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, if we put it off, if we defer it, if we neglect it? If we just let time go by and we do not pick up the gauntlet, if we don't pick up the challenge, if we don't simply take that step, if we neglect salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. There's a very great deal of criticism in Paul's life, and I won't cover but a little fraction of it by going over to 2 Corinthians, the 10th chapter, and verse 12, where he said, We dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves, call themselves special, spiritually speaking, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves. This was the stratification of society. It was a class distinction. It was a spiritual credentials we're dealing with here about who was greater and who was more faithful and who was more holy and who was more uh, solicitous of other people and who was more generous or who was better or better tither or maybe whatever. They are not wise. But we will not boast of things without our measure, but according to the measure of the rule which God has distributed to us, a measure to reach even unto you. Verse 18, he that commends himself is not approved, but whom the Lord commends. Then he talked about false apostles, false apostles, I'm sorry, and false teachers and so on. And he said very clearly that when he was weak, then is when he was strong. I'll conclude by going over to 1 Corinthians, and in the sixth chapter, we read of fornication in a family and of how, G uh, how the apostle Paul said that that individual was to be put out of the church. And eventually in chapter 6 and verse 7 said, Now therefore there is utterly a fault among you because you to go to law one with another. They were so judgmental that they were actually going to civil courts in fractious problems in the church. Why do you not rather take wrong? Why do you not rather permit yourselves to be defrauded? No, you do wrong and defraud, and that your own brethren. Now listen to this little passage. Know you not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. In other words, don't kid yourself. Fornicators, idolaters, and idols can be anything from automobiles to larger salaries to other people to clothing to a better image of ourselves. Anything that gets between you and God can become an idol. Nor adulterers, nor effeminate, yes, effeminacy or homosexuality is a sin and is, according to the Word of God, something which can be repented of and can be overcome. 
because some of them had, had formerly been effeminate and they'd repented and come into God's church and they were no longer effeminate because effeminacy is an affected, false, acquired syndrome. They're not born that way. They acquire it. We're dealing here with a sin. Nor abusers of themselves with mankind. I won't go into detail. Nor thieves, people who will sneak the property of someone else or money. Nor covetous, just lusts all the time for things that they don't have. Nor drunkards, alcoholism is a very great problem. Nor revilers, a person with a temple who's just, uh, I'm sorry, a temper, but a person with a rotten tongue who's just a, an inveterate gossip. Nor extortioners, a con man, a, a guy who would uh, sell you false insurance or whatever, but it just, you know, lies with regard to documentation or in, in business or sales, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. The congregation he talked to, that he wrote to, were a pack of former thieves, effeminates, queers, weirdos, bunco artists, con men crooks, revilers, people who blaspheme God's name, who were adulterers, and so on. They weren't the good people. They were the dregs who had to acknowledge how bad they were so they could now allow Jesus Christ to give him some of his goodness. Some of you were like that. Such were some of you. But you are washed. You are sanctified. You are justified. And justification has to do with the removal of past guilt. It has nothing to do with license from now on. It has to do with rectifying or making right up to this point in time by removing every sin that you've committed in the past. You are sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. The Apostle Paul said, when he was weak, then he was strong. And I want to conclude by going over to Romans, the eighth chapter, and notice just the first verse a very important principle. There is therefore now no condemnation, not from Satan the devil as the prosecuting attorney. He cannot whisper in God's ear anymore and say, look at so-and-so down there doing such and such. Nor from enemies or from other churches or from your own conscience. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who live their lives not according to the flesh, meaning physical appetites, physical standards, but after or according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Jesus Christ has made me free from the law of sin and death. True freedom, unshackling the bonds that sometimes hold us captive to our own appetites, is found only in Jesus Christ. You can't fight Satan the devil by yourself. You can't even fight one of his demons by yourself. And you cannot overcome physical passions and appetites by yourself. You've got to have help. So if some of you out there have been putting it off, thinking about it, but thinking you're not good enough, you've listened to other churches and other people say that you've got to measure up, you've got to study, you've got to undergo all this change, you've got to present yourself pretty close to perfect before you're good enough to come in there, forget it. If you feel you're bad, just acknowledge that to God. He knows anyway. He knows better than you do what your sins are. And every last one of them can be removed, and you can start life as if you were born brand new all over again and have your past as clean as a big, beautiful field of driven snow without a single blemish on it. And then from then on, the rest of it is up to you with God's help.